You're listening to the flagship show of the Restoration Radio Network, the network for the thinking Catholic. And now, your host. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the flagship show of member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Nicholas Disposito, a seminary professor also at Most Holy Trinity Seminary. Your Excellency, Father, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Hello, thank you. Well, I promised our listeners that we would get back into this, Your Excellency, and for any listeners who were who were painful, uh, who were pained at my skipping past paragraphs that His Excellency wanted to highlight, have no fear. Today is the director's cut, as I'm calling it. We're going to start at chapter one. Uh, we're going to get as far as we can get today. And the goal, obviously, over the next few episodes, if it ends up being one episode, two episodes, three episodes, is to go through the entire text itself so people can understand just how horrifying this document is. And we're, we're going to start at the beginning, uh, Your Excellency, with chapter one. Before we get started, I guess I would say how this process, I suppose, preparing for today's episode was different from last time. I think last time we were sort of in the heat of the moment, but now you've had some time to consider this document. Do you have any reflections before we get started? Well, uh, just uh, chapter 8, which we did the last time, has, we might say, all of the meaty stuff. Uh, but the, the these chapters that come ahead of chapter 8 have quite a few points that need to be shown as erroneous or downright heretical, uh, very, very dangerous, uh, and uh, yes, we've digested this. We've also seen some reaction to the whole thing, uh, which is also interesting and we maybe should talk about eventually too. But, uh, the, um, but we, we have uh, analyzed this whole document. Uh, I, I said to uh, someone uh, that it is, in my opinion, as pivotal as Vatican II itself. That this this document uh, subjects the law to conscience, and also subjects the the doctrine to the pastoral. The, that it makes the general point that the while the doctrine is there, the pastoral can alter the doctrine effectively. Uh, in the practical order, by permitting things that the doctrine doesn't permit uh, because uh, of serious reasons and, and other considerations, mercy and whatnot and so forth. So it, it's that if you do that to the Catholic Church, you, you just explode it. Uh, and va- it's all contained in seed in Vatican II. But here it is uh, made much more explicit. So I always say again, there is nothing in Bergoglio that was that cannot be first found in Vatican II. The whole idea of ecumenism destroys the idea of of doctrine over uh, pastoral. The ecumenism establishes, well, it even establishes in Vatican II, a false doctrine, but it also establishes a false pastoral practice, and we should talk about that as, as we go along. Um, so uh, that, that's, that's what we're saying. Uh, yes, I will just to add something just very quickly, that even the document, Amoris Leticia now, is more, I would say, bold uh, in establishing that there is need for a continued open discussion of a number of doctrinal, moral, spiritual, and pastoral questions. So 
now they are not saying that it's just pastoral, but they are already uh, saying that it is a doctrinal uh, discussion. Yes, and what what discussion do we need? I mean, aren't all of these things, all of the things that pertain to the morality of family life, are they not already set down by the magisterium of the church? What discussion do we need? Is it not true that divorce and remarriage is adultery? Didn't our Lord say that that that's adultery? Did not St. Paul say adulterers are going to hell? Did he not say that? Uh, why do we need discussion about all of that? Moral questions, spiritual questions, pastoral questions. What has changed? The fornication is, it needs discussion. Why do we need to discuss fornication? St. Paul says fornicators are going to hell. Why discussion? What do we need? That the church's pastoral practice has always been in accordance with its doctrinal, with its doctrine. And, and now we're saying we need discussion. We don't need discussion. The only thing to discuss is submission. How we're going to submit to the doctrine and pastoral practice of the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very simple thing to do. It takes about 30 seconds. Just say, I submit, and that's it. Now, so this idea that we have to open up the age-old practice of the church and age-old doctrines of the church and submit them to discussion, that, that means they're open to doubt and open to change. Yes. And, and the, the thing of the, the, the example used of the woman caught in adultery, um, even... Uh, explicitly contradicts what our Lord said, go and now sin no more. <clears throat> uh, for Bergoglio, it's just to, our Lord told her to lead a more worthy life. So, meaning that there are degrees of, um, of morality, you can have like a certain adultery, which is good, not the best, not the ideal, but yes, it's, I think that in that sense is the discussion of the doctrinal, uh, we have to change the, the doctrine itself, not, not merely an interpretation, as they tried to say. So if we look at uh, chapter 1 and number 3, I think it's easier to go by the numbers than the chapters, just number 3 of this document. He says, since time is greater than space, <clears throat> I would make it clear that not all discussions of doctrinal, moral, or pastoral issues need to be settled by interventions of the magisterium. Now, we're, we don't know exactly what he means by time is greater than space, but we think that it's code to the liberals and radical modernists who would like to see everything done in this document all at once. And he's saying, we think, wait it out, and you'll see that with time everything will go your way. Uh, he doesn't e explain that, that, that statement, but that's most probably uh, uh, code for them. And then he says I, I, that not all discussions of doctrinal, moral, or pastoral issues need to be settled by interventions of the magisterium. What, what are they settled by then? What is the purpose of the church except to teach concerning doctrinal, moral, and pastoral issues? Why would that not be the magisterium? Who else is going to teach it? Hans Kung, maybe, or, or, or you know, Bergoglio, you know, Bergoglio in one of his, uh, uh, you know, crazy moments, or, or uh, the, which are most of the time. Uh, the, uh, why do you exclude the magisterium from these discussions? 
what is the purpose of the church except to teach? Uh, so already he, he is taking all of these issues away from the teaching of the church. And that this is up to, uh, it's going, we'll see, we'll, it'll be up to individual priests to make discernments if you can commit adultery or not, or, or if you can continue in your fornication. And, uh, that, that's, uh, it's all going to be taken out of the area of law and doctrine and put on a level of, of individualism uh, and subjectivism. Yes, and even go so far as, as to, criticize the what she calls the church to um, because of an exclusive almost exclusive insistence on the duty of procreation so basically now we have to um, if we I mean those who want to put into practice that uh, Maurice Leticia they, they shouldn't speak too much about the duty of procreation in marriage but about the ideal of mutual assistance and things like that uh, the growing love so it's, the whole thing changes so it's, uh, it's very clear for me, it's, uh, what is not easy to understand for me is the, the lack of, of a, a more, um, uh, a stronger reaction on the part of those who call themselves Catholic, traditional Catholics. Uh, going back to uh, number three, he says, the unity of teaching and practice is certainly necessary in the church, but, that is known as the magic conjunction, this does not preclude various ways of interpreting some aspects of that teaching or drawing certain consequences from it. And so it's typical of Vatican II. Vatican II always or almost always said something true, and then there was the but afterwards. And he has done it, has, uh, done it again, or he has done it again in this document, various ways of interpreting some aspects of that teaching. What does he mean by that? Why is there a but? But is adversative. That means that it disagrees with what you have said already. Uh, it is raining today, but we will play ball anyway. So it's adversative against what you've already said. So this means the, the but indicates that the interpretations are going to be at variance with the law. The, and the doctrine. So he, he's, you know, it's explicit. Uh, then he says, this will always be the case as the Spirit guides us toward the entire truth. As if we don't know what the, the church teaches already concerning adultery, fornication, public sin, and all of the pastoral practice that is owed to those things. As if we were learning as we go along. So, um, uh, so it, it's a very, very serious document. It takes, it, 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 it makes all sorts of principles that are, are totally destructive of the Catholic faith. Five, it's interesting that it says that we, uh, it, it's not helpful to try to impose rules by sheer authority. So again, the, uh, the whole idea of uh, we have to just let people have, for, uh, have whatever moral uh, principles uh, and their consciences what is going to dictate what to do. And, and the priest, as says later on, um, in number 37, is not supposed to um, replace the conscience of people but to form them. But at, at the same time, there's a contradiction in the document itself because uh, we, before... It says that we shouldn't even form consciences. So, um, 
the because that's bad. That's, it's bad to to try to impose our our own ideas to people. Uh, so the, the at the end, the whole point is just that let people still be in sin, or just not to say anything about their public sin of adultery or whatever other thing it is, um, and help them or accompany them or whatever they they call it um, in their in, in their lives, and the church shouldn't tell them to that they are excommunicated or separated because of the sin, but that the church is with them because of uh, mercy and because of love, because of that's that's the the end uh, that our Lord um, had in mind when He came to so came to us, not to reform our 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 lives, but to present an ideal. And if we do not get into the ideal, we still are loved by God, and the Church accompanies us. Yes, in 36 he says, uh, at times we have also proposed a far too abstract and almost artificial theological ideal of marriage, far removed from the concrete situations and practical possibilities of real families. So he's launching this idea that the indissoluble, indissolubility of marriage is an ideal, that it, it is something to achieve in an abstract way. Uh, but it's artificial, uh, and it's removed from concrete situations and practical possibilities of real families. In the context of what comes after in this document, the, the situations and practical possibilities refers to adultery, where he'll say later that, uh, as we saw in number eight, in chapter eight, we saw, uh, last time that, uh, uh, that uh, intimacy between the the uh, couple in adultery may be necessary in order for the, the to preserve the good of the children. See, so the good of the children might demand that they commit sins of adultery. Those who are divorced and remarried, remarried. You see, that's a concrete situation, or that uh, continuing in a an adulterous relationship might might be their best response to God. See, that's in, and that's in chapter 8, which we did the last time. So, considering this statement in view of chapter 8, it just, it explodes the Catholic faith. I mean, there's nothing left after this. Also, the, uh, in 37, uh, just, uh, what Father was speaking about, uh, that uh, we also find, says, we also find it hard to make room for the consciences of the faithful who very often respond as best they can to the gospel amid, amid their limitations, there you go again, and are capable of carrying out their own discernment in complex situations. We have been called, he says, to form consciences, not to replace them. Now, the, the just a little um, catechism about what conscience is. Conscience is merely the application by the mind of the moral law to an act which you are about to perform. So if, you know, if a man is hunting and, and he sees something that he thinks is a deer and he shoots, he applies the moral law that it is legitimate to shoot, you know, except for the animal rights lovers and all. But <laughs> to uh, the, you know, just a, a normal person, let's say, would shoot. Now, if he finds that that is a man instead of a deer, uh, he, he acted in good conscience because 
he applied the moral law to a, something that he was about to do, that this is a deer and therefore it can be shot. Uh, the, so that is true of all conscience. The erroneous view of conscience is that it is some sort of contact that we have with God as to what we should do, and God informs us of what we should do apart from the moral law. That, that it is, it is some sort of, uh, consciousness that we have of what is right for us. And that God is somehow communicating what is right for us. That is false. That is a false notion of conscience. It's not some sort of what we call a faculty which decides what is right and wrong. It is merely an act of the intellect whereby we apply the moral law. And so to, to say, what he's saying here is the erroneous notion of conscience that the moral law is merely a suggestion to the conscience, but that the conscience can dispense with the moral law when it sees fit. Another point that we have to say about conscience is that anything to do with natural law never admits exception. And I said this in the last show, that when something is intrinsically evil, that is against the natural law, it never admits of an exception. Therefore, uh, you cannot say, well, I have a serious reason to disobey the natural law. If it is a what we call a divine positive law or a human positive law, there are uh, situations and reasons whereby you can violate it uh, in good conscience and with reason. For example, the Sunday law to, to go to, to mass or to abstain from servile work. That's a, what we call a divine positive law. It is not natural law. It is not something in accordance or, or which, which nature demands, but it is something that God has set down. That admits of situations in which you could say, well, I have a serious reason whereby I cannot go to mass today or whereby I must do some uh, servile work on Sunday. That does admit exceptions, but he is placing all of this sexual morality on the level of some divine positive law or merely human law, which admits of exceptions uh, because of serious reasons. That is contrary to the teaching of the Catholic Church. Everything that, that pertains to sexuality pertains to natural law and admits no exception whatsoever. That is the teaching of the Catholic Church. And therefore, it's impossible for them, for these people, to be in good conscience with regard to uh, going against the natural law? I mean, because of that, what you're saying? Only by pure ignorance, mm-hmm. which is very, very difficult in questions of natural law. Uh, the uh, to, to be ignorant of what nature demands is is very, very difficult in the, in the opinion of theologians, the moral theologians, that you would have to be so stupid and and so crude, so to speak, from the point of view of morals, and so depraved in morals that uh, you, you might be ignorant of it. But that really doesn't address mm-hmm. it. See, conscience is—he's—he's uh, he's calling conscience something that is not responsible to the moral law, and that's—that is again a, a, a total destruction of Catholic teaching. Mm-hmm. And also, just by the way, the. A document like this, instead of 
saying what it, it is saying, um, it should present the moral law so that people are able to uh, basically form their consciences. As, as is, I mean, the, the, the whole thing is to um, they are saying yes, the conscience makes the in certain circumstances the, the right discernment, but no one is teaching them the the moral law in order that they can apply it. So it's leaving them in ignorance, basically, and saying, you are going to do right in any case, I mean, you're going to have good discernment. So I never, I mean, you never see, or I went to the Novo Sordo until I was 16 years old, and nobody ever, no priest ever mentioned uh, the, the word, uh, the concept of mortal sin. So how I was supposed to know that and, and be able to apply uh, the or the conscience or uh, to if nobody was telling me what really what the law was I mean so of course in this case as you say the the uh, the law is imprinted in the, in the heart of man I mean it's, it's, ignorance is very difficult with regard to that moral law but even in other things the noble sordo never teaches what the law is so how they expect people to follow that afterwards uh, looking at uh, number 38 he says, yet we have often been on the defensive, wasting pastoral energy on denouncing a decadent world without being proactive in proposing ways of finding true happiness. Many people feel that the church's message on marriage and the family does not clearly reflect the preaching and attitudes of Jesus, who set forth a demanding ideal... There you go. Yet never fail to show compassion and closeness to the frailty of individuals like the Samaritan woman or the woman caught in adultery. All right. So this again is a, is a, it's saying that and taking the side of those essentially who are saying that the church's traditional teaching is too harsh. Uh, it's not in conformity with the gospel. That in itself is a heresy. Uh, and, you know, the, the, what did our Lord say to the Samaritan woman? That you are right in saying that the, the man that you're with now is not your husband. <laughs> That's what he said. That's a, not exactly a compassionate thing to say to her. Uh, and what did he say to the woman caught in adultery? Go now and sin no more. Uh, and, and which means get away from the man that you're with because he, he's an adulterer and so are you. Uh, so, uh, the only thing that, that he protected her from was a stoning in order to, uh, tell the Pharisees that they have their own sins and that they should, uh, show mercy to her in her sins. But it, it was not in any way an absolution of her adultery. Not in any way at all. Uh, you know, you're, you're... Your Excellency, I'm reminded a few years ago in the United States presidential election, there was a debate between uh, Obama and, and John McCain, and this person was made into an instant celebrity, Joe the Plumber, and they kept using Joe the Plumber throughout the whole debate. And I feel like the Samaritan woman's been used a little bit like Joe the Plumber here. He just uses her any time he wants to make a point. It doesn't matter whether the Samaritan woman has any relationship to what he's saying. It's just, if I can use the Samaritan woman, this is an example of our Lord ignoring everything and saying that everything's fine. And as you say, uh, it's not very compassionate to say, uh, the, the man you live with now is not your husband, nor are the other five, you know, or right. what exactly our you Lord had, said. You I mean, had five husbands. Right, that's, <laughs> that's, that's not exactly compassionate. 
Um, so, no. And why did he not also then, if he's going to cite Jesus, what Jesus said about uh, uh, marrying somebody who has been put away by his by uh, by his her husband that that he com- he commits adultery. You know, is that that's not very compassionate, is it? You know, <laughs> the the why do we do we isolate the Samaritan woman and the woman caught in adultery and and neglect that other passage, the other passages from our blessed Lord and Saint Paul uh, condemning adultery without any any kind of compromise at all, uh, very clearly condemning it. Uh, and saying people will go to hell for adultery. Why are those texts not in there? Is St. Paul unfaithful to the gospel of Jesus? Are we going to say that? Because he said they're going to hell? He was probably influenced by his culture. That's right. You know, all of that culture at the time. (laughs) Which, again, is absurd, because the Romans were not exactly uh, cultivators of, uh, you know, purity and chastity. Not at all. Uh, and his his remarks concerning all sexual morality in his epistles were a shock to the Corinthians and to the others who heard them, the Romans in particular and the Corinthians. Those were the two sort of, uh, you know, let's say problem children. <laughs> and and uh, the uh, they they were totally against the culture. And the church has always pointed that out that Christianity came into a culture. Uh, that was loaded with with filth and dirt and and all sorts of sexual immorality, and told everybody that you have to be chaste, you have to lead chaste lives and be faithful to your spouses, and that is one of the proofs of the the divinity of of the the church in the sense of its divine founding and divine assistance that it was able to overcome the culture that it went into. Uh, with these very, very strict doctrines and mo- and moral codes. So, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about, this man, but uh, fortunately, or well, I guess unfortunately, the people that he's talking to don't know any more than he does. So I think we are wasting pastoral energy right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's continue on, Father, because as we know, time is greater than space. Yes. <laughs> Probably more expensive too. Uh, number forty-two. Um, uh, this is a <laughs> uh, the, the upright consciences of spouses who have been generous in transmitting life may lead them, for sufficiently serious reasons, to limit the number of their children. Yet precisely for the sake of this dignity of conscience. The Church strongly rejects the forced state intervention in favor of contraception, sterilization, and even abortion. Now, there's a couple of things in here. Uh, that the conscience decides whether children should be limited or not. It is not the law that decides it. It is not the will of God. But again, this conscience, which is supreme here, and the reason why the church is against the state intervention is because of the dignity of conscience, not because of the law of God. Now you see what that does. By dignity of conscience, logically, that means that the couples can decide 
to have contraception, sterilization, or even abortion. Logically, that's what that sentence leads to. That the dignity of conscience is what is violated in, in the state's intervention with regard to those things. So by dignity of conscience, they can decide for themselves that they will have those things. That, that, that is, it, it's, it's dizzying. It's, it's so bad. Where is the law of God? Where is the fact that abortion is murder? Where is the fact that contraception and sterilization are against the natural law? Where is the Onanism and the story of Onan that was in Casti Canubii as Pius XI's infallible condemnation cited for the infallible condemnation of contraception? Where is that? See, so he's he's putting conscience as as a this, like a god. It's the moral god, which is exactly what Adam and Eve wanted. Ye shall be like gods, having the knowledge of good and evil. And that has always been interpreted as their desire to replace God as the determiner of the moral law. It's wicked. The whole thing is, is so evil that, that, uh, yet it's being nicely swallowed by the Novus Ordo conservatives as uh, either we can ignore it, you know, uh, recognize and ignore, uh, or that nothing has changed, that, that there, everything is, is, is wonderful about it, except for the pastoral issues. But there's a lot of doctrine in here that is absolutely unacceptable. Yes, but the, but the thing, I, I mean, in the beginning, uh, they also reacted to Vatican II, but now they... Uh, I have seen uh, traditional, supposedly traditional Catholic websites already uh, implementing uh, ecumenism, and uh, so even Bishop Felix said that the society practices ecumenism. I don't think I, I don't see why. I mean, from ten, ten years from now, um, they are going to apply all of these things. Uh, it's a question of, I mean, if they accept the principles. Yes. Um. Yeah, the, the Novus Ordo conservatives, uh, are, really would, will accept anything. Uh, I think they, they will just take anything that comes down and, and will apply some sort of, uh, rationale to it. Uh, they, they so detest the idea of saying that that man is a heretic. Although I have heard that some of them are saying, yes, he is a heretic, but he's still the Pope. Yeah. I, I've heard that too. So, uh, but, uh, no, the, the our insistence that we cannot admit this as Catholic doctrine, and therefore we cannot admit him as a Catholic Pope, is it's just something so abhorrent to them that that they will just do anything uh, and cover their eyes in whatever way they need to, in order to remain in that you know, that position that they're in. And uh, as I was telling the seminarians yesterday, and as I said on this show before, that the way they deal with this is they expiate themselves by worry and suffering. So there has to be a good deal of eye-rolling and a good deal of hand-wringing. And once the eye-rolling and hand-wringing episode is over, then they are then they are expiated, and then they can continue in either their Novus Order religion uh, or in aspiring to be part of the Novus Order religion, 
uh, and and there's no problem. Uh, Bishop Fele, for example, said that this document brought him to tears, something to that effect. So the tears are expiating, and therefore they can continue to aspire to be part of this new religion. Uh, so that that's everything's taken care of by by eye rolling, and uh, and hand wringing. Anyway, moving on to number 49. Uh, for example, um, <clears throat> well, let me start from the beginning. Here I would also like to mention the situation of families living in dire poverty and great limitations. The problems faced by poor households are often all the more trying. For example, if a single mother has to raise a child by herself and needs to leave the child alone at home while she goes to work, the child can grow up exposed to all kinds of risks and obstacles to personal growth. Like this, this apostolic experience yes. you may find yeah. around you on might. the internet. I always like on Nova Sorda Watch the, the disclaimer, beware, uh, Bergoglio speaks. <laughs> speaks, you know, it's like... Uh, it's true, he might, you know, find some of these evil documents. And But notice that all kinds of risks and obstacles to personal growth. What about morality and faith? Personal growth. In such difficult situations of need, the church must be particularly concerned to offer understanding, comfort, and acceptance, rather than imposing straight away a set of rules that only lead people to feel judged and abandoned by the very mother called to show them God's mercy. So this is code for saying that if a woman finds herself in that situation, uh, she can, uh, uh, you know, have a boyfriend and practice birth control if that, uh, uh, you know, makes her family life at home and, uh, she can go out and work or, and he can stay home and, and sit around or whatever. Uh, the, the, uh, that's acceptance and a Holy Mother Church is supposed to show mercy. So this mercy means that you can bend the rules with regard to fornication and adultery uh, if there's a serious reason. That's mercy. Um, and that people shouldn't feel judged and abandoned. Uh, as one commenter, a commentator pointed out, you know, they're always saying judgment and you shouldn't be judged. He said that acquittal is also judgment. <laughs> See, judgment is not only condemnation, but so is acquittal. And uh, this, if you're acquitting uh, moral or, or immorality, sexual immorality, you're making a judgment. Uh, so th this idea that, that judgment always involves condemnation is, is just not true. Uh, we always must make a judgment, one way or the other, whether somebody is in accordance with the moral law, acting in accordance with the moral law, or acting against the moral law. We do that all the time, every day. We judge that terrorists are acting against the moral law. And if you say, they're, well, that what they're doing is justified or they're acting in conscience, uh, I think you would be very unpopular <laughs> to say that. Uh, the, 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 the world and the media are constantly making judgments about people, uh, uh, either exonerating them of guilt or accusing them uh, of, of guilt. Uh, the, in North Carolina, you know, anyone that would say, well, you know, to enforce the, the men's room and ladies room rule, that now they're reducing that to hate. 
See, that's hate to just say that men should go into the men's room and women should go into the to the ladies' room is hate. Uh, and uh, so that that's judgment. Oh boy, is that judgment? You see, but that's okay for liberal media to do that, and liberals and and socialists and communists and other uh, people like that. But the it's it's wrong if uh, uh, if anyone else does it. Going to number 52, there is a failure to realize that only the exclusive and indissoluble union between a man and a woman has a plenary role to uh, to play in society as a stable commitment that bears fruit in new life. We need to acknowledge the great variety of family situations that can offer a certain stability, but de facto or same-sex unions, for example, may not simply be equated with marriage. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of things. Uh, the uh, uh, So those who are in these irregular situations, as they will say later, uh, adultery, uh, that, you know, really they should be married. You see, so they don't understand that the indissoluble union is is really the right thing in the ideal. Uh, but there are a great variety of family situations that can offer a certain stability, but de facto or same-sex unions, now you're expecting to hear, are really wrong. You know, these are terrible things and, and are worthy to be condemned. No. May not. May, okay, not simply, there's an adverb, uh, and as lawyers say, the devil is always in the adverb, be equated with marriage. Be equated. <laughs> that means they're, what, second rate? Or, or uh, like a used car, maybe? You know, it 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 is... Yeah, as long as you don't equate it, I mean, it's okay. Yes. You see, so it is, it, it's not as good as marriage. But still, it's not a condemnation. And it's not simply, and it may not simply. So, uh, it, it uh, so anyway. Uh, so there's there's that open door to somehow uh, giving some value to to living together and even living together in an unnatural sex. All right. In number 53, surely it is legitimate and right to reject older forms of the traditional family marked by authoritarianism and even violence. Yet this should not lead to a disparagement of marriage itself, but rather to the rediscovery of its authentic meaning and its renewal. So what does he mean by this? Reject the older forms of the traditional family marked by authoritarianism I think the translation of that is that the the man is the head of the house and wives be subject to your husband. That that's the older form. Uh, and the church never condoned violence. Come on. I think I think maybe you're actually saying that it's violent to uh, women's rights. Uh, to, that could to be. Yeah. Like that. Yes, that could be. Uh, but this idea of uh, again, this is code for everybody. Uh, and that's why I say this is an insulting document because it is to speak to the world as if it were children 
as if uh, you know how parents spell words that they don't want their children to learn to understand if they're talking about something <laughs> spell words this is the same thing this is talking in in modernist code and they're talking to each other all the modernists are are hearing this this is all for clergy mostly and and uh this is instead of coming outright and saying it they're they're saying these things that lead you to believe uh, the traditional notion of the family is 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 wrong, and and you know the idea that wives be the subject of your husbands, and later he's going to say that was a cultural thing with Saint Paul, but we'll see that later. <clears throat> um, so uh, uh, going to number fifty four, the uh, equal dignity of men and women makes us rejoice to see old forms of discrimination disappear. And and within families, there is a growing reciprocity. That means that there is no head of the family, and that there are two heads until the, in most cases, the woman decides that she is the head and overcomes whatever resistance that she has gotten from the husband. That's 90% or better of the cases. There can only be one boss in any institution. And... And to say that there are two heads in the family is absolutely absurd. It can never last. So that that's uh, uh, the uh, and therefore he's praising the feminist movement, which I think is one of the biggest contributing factors to the destruction of the of society that we see today. Uh, what uh, happened in the 1960s? What what the 1960s did to women? Uh, because women are, are, of course, extremely important and essential in the role of the family. And their role as assistant to men, which is defined in Genesis, is extremely important. Their role in, in keeping a home, uh, is extremely important. Their role in their day-to-day discipline of the children and teaching of the children in the as representatives of the head of the house while he is out working is extremely important and to 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 give a, a blanket approval to to feminism and and the destruction of the role of women in society uh which has in turn destroyed society uh is is again an, another slap in the face to to catholic practice and catholic doctrine concerning the role of women. Um, then he says, if certain forms of feminism have arisen, which we must consider inadequate, I love the, the, the adjectives that they use, we must never, nonetheless see in the women's movement the working of the spirit for a clearer recognition of the dignity and rights of women. So the, all of the destruction of women that has taken place since 1960, and with it the destruction of the family, is now assigned to the third person of the Blessed Trinity, which is a blasphemy. Now, one of the, those rights that they claim is to to be able to do whatever they want with their bodies and make, I mean, and abort babies. So, I mean, that might go under the title of inadequate. Okay. <laughs> And this is in, in good conscience, probably. but what it does is approve of what is typically the modern woman, and that is somebody who puts herself on birth control until she's about 30 or 35, it runs around with men all during her t- 
teens and her 20s and up into her 30s, uh, pursues her career, which will be, of course, incompatible with home life if she continues to pursue it after she's married, uh, and then who settles down at maybe age 35 and marries uh, somebody who has also been running around with the women, obviously, because... Uh, and and uh, then she will decide to have a trophy baby, and she'll go off the birth control and and might have one or maybe two trophy babies who will be uh, receive this lavish life because of a two income home, and uh, the uh, and you know with high risk pregnancies at that age too. Uh, and, uh, and, but of course, you know, you can use your conscience. If you can see the pregnancy went wrong, you can abort the fetus. It's the dignity of conscience. Uh, and, and, you know, you can use birth control too. Uh, this is, this, this is modern feminism. Uh, the, the idea that, that, uh, you can pursue a career and be married at the same time. You know, where, where, for example, there's two doctors in the same house. You know, the husband and wife are, are doctors. She's got her career, he's got his, and then the children are, are raised by a nanny or, or somebody, you know, some stranger. That's just modern feminism. The traditional family life was that women would get married. First of all, that they were at least in principle chased up to the, their marriage. This was even the 1950s. Uh, and that once you were married, you would um, uh, settle down in the home, have children, have many children, as many as God wants you to have, and the mother would take care of the home, which is a very important thing to do. It's much more important than what the father does in this sense. Uh, you know, the father goes out and works some job, which he may even hate, uh, and and brings home money. The, the she has such an important role with regard to the day by day, even hour by hour, minute by by minute formation of those children. That you know, she she's got the hands-on formation of the children. That is so important. She has to be a good mother. She has to to uh, to have domestic skills. But the home has been derided as some sort of prison for her and some sort of degrading humiliation and it's just not true the degrading humiliation is what she does out in the world uh that that's i think chesterton points out that actually the woman is the one that has freedom in the home because she can make the home as she likes and then and i mean decorate it and do all the things while the man who goes to work actually has to do everything that the boss tells him to do he doesn't have any freedom so with regard to that so it's a it's interesting how they take freedom from the woman uh, under the excuse of giving her the freedom. So, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is a, a wholesale approval of everything that has gone on. This, there should be a whole encyclical condemning feminism, uh, pointing out the true role of women and according to Genesis and according to the traditional teaching of the church and Catholic culture. Uh, and condemning the, the feminism of the 1960s as something evil, which has wrought incredible evil. It, it is the reason for abortion. Uh, it, it's the claim, you know, this, this is part of my body, and nobody can tell me anything different. So, um, so going to 
the next paragraph of interest, uh, number 65. Uh, well, one interesting thing in 65, he has a couple of real humdingers with regard to sacred scripture in this. He, he says, uh, we need to enter into the mystery of Jesus' birth uh, into that yes given by Mary to the message of the angel when the word was conceived in her womb, as well as the yes of Joseph, who gave a name to Jesus. Excuse me, but didn't the angel Gabriel announce the name? I mean, you know, is he reading the same St. Luke that I read? When, Where is it in sacred scripture that Joseph gave the name Jesus? He's probably getting it mixed up with St. John the Baptist, Your Excellency. I think he is. <laughs> There's nothing in sacred scripture that says that. That that uh, he gave the name to. Uh, so, I mean, he may have mentioned it at when he was circumcised, uh, but he didn't give the name. The name was given by God. It was given by his father. And it was announced by the angel Gabriel. So, uh, that's an interesting point, but... He says a little later on, we then need to peer into those 30 long years when Jesus earned his keep by the work of his hands, reciting the traditional prayers and expressions of his people's faith, and coming to know that ancestral faith until he made it bear fruit in the mystery of the kingdom. So, the... It, it It is true that our Lord had what we call experiential knowledge and that he could learn something by experience what he also knew by his divine knowledge and by what we call his infused knowledge in his human intellect. But this, the way he says this, is, is completely modernist, that, that Christ was learning his ancestral faith, coming to know it, uh, you know, when you talk about the knowledge of Christ, you have to be very, very careful and distinguish what you're talking about. Uh, this implies that Christ was learning in the same way that that, that David down the street, or, or you know, Nathan, a neighbor down the street in Nazareth, was was learning it. Uh, and you know, it's it it's very a very dangerous way of putting it, at least. So. <clears throat> Well, I think we have to make sure that we give as many platitudes to our uh, elder brothers in the faith, Your Excellency, as possible. Yeah, I think so. Too. Then in number 71, he says, The family is the image of God, who is a communion of persons. And in the, uh, in the margin, I have written heresy. I, I think that it's heresy, I'm going to say I think, that it's heresy to say that God is a communion of persons, because communion involves the word union. Union always means a, a coming together of things that pre-exist, like the union of the United States. See, that, that you have pre-existing states and they come together. And then they are in communion, one with another, a, a common union. See? If you have pre-existing persons coming together in a union, you have three gods 
that are united by something which is accidental and not not subsistent and consubstantial with with uh, you know, well what I'm trying to say is that it takes away the unity of divine essence, which is a heresy uh, and just makes the god a a a community or communion of three pre-existing persons. That's not who God is. And don't forget, he, he denies the unity of essence. He says that the unity of essence in God is is God's spray. And he says, God does not exist. That's a quote uh, referring to the unity of essence, that there is no unity of essence. Uh, it's only the persons who exist. That's what he says. So this, again, is his Trinitarian heresy. Uh, as far as I can see, I mean, I don't think you can say that it is a communion of persons. So anyway, if he means it as that, as a, uh, uh, in the same way that a family, uh, is, is, is a, a communion of persons, that is, uh, independent persons who live in a union, that's heresy. God does, God is not a union of persons. He is, uh, he is one God in three divine persons, three, uh, and uh, uh, it's, the word communion there is entirely improper. So, that said, um, going on to uh, paragraph 74, God showed the fullness of his love for humanity by becoming one with us. So, uh, this is incarnational theology that was spread by JP2, that, uh, that he became, he, he redeemed the human race by his, by uniting himself with all humanity by becoming man. That's the incarnational theology, uh, for which JP2 is particularly known. <clears throat> John Paul II, in case you don't know who I'm referring to. Going to number 80, the transmission of life and the rearing of children. Marriage is firstly an, quote, intimate partnership of life and love. All right, that's a heretical definition. Uh, well, the, foot, the footnote, uh, the footnote um, gets you to Gaudium, it says, Your Excellency, that's why. Oh, okay, okay. The... Is, you could say that about a homosexual union. If it's an intimate partnership of life and love, you could say that about people living together. I mean, that, that is not what, what marriage is. It's a contract that, uh, by which people, uh, pledge to each other the right and give to each other the right to use each other's bodies for the procreation of children. That's the Catholic definition of marriage. It's a contract. It's in the what we call the Janus of contract. It is not a, in the, I mean, you don't, why do you need to come down the aisle if it's just a, an intimate partnership of life and love? Yeah. <laughs> Every fornicator can, can claim that. Uh, and then it continues, which is a good for the spouses themselves, while sexuality is, quote, ordered to the conjugal love of man and woman. Sexuality is ordered to the begetting of children. 
And the conjugal love of man and woman is accidental to that and secondary to that. Uh, the, the, the only reason why pleasure is attached to uh, sexual intercourse is in order that people accomplish the marriage act in order that there be children. If there were no pleasure attached to that, no one would engage in the marriage act and there would be no children. Proof of that is that little children are not attracted to, boys are not attracted to girls when they're little boys and little girls, and girls hate boys. <laughs> that there is no, the, the attraction starts to occur when there is a, a, a maturing of the sexual organs which are ordered to procreation. The, the, so the, any kind of let's say, reinforcement of love in marriage that comes from the marriage act is accidental to the purpose of the marriage act, which is procreation of children. It's secondary. It's something that flows accidentally from it because you could have two people that can't stand each other yet might uh, engage in sexual intercourse for some reason. I can think of kings and queens, for example, in, in the past, who <laughs> had no use for each other. They were simply married for the sake of, of, uh, power and dynasty and, and land grabbing and so forth. Uh, they say the Habsburgs built their whole empire based on the marriage. Uh, and so, you know, they, they really, many of them didn't care one for the other, but they knew it was politically expedient to be married to this one or that, that one. And they engaged in uh, sexual intercourse for the purpose of male offspring in order that the dynasty not die out. But, you know, that, that it, it's, it's ordered for procreation and whether there's conjugal love or not really doesn't matter. There are many uh, women particularly who, as they grow older, are really not interested in, in sexual intercourse with their husbands. They're just not interested. And... You know, it's, it doesn't do anything for anybody. Uh, you know, in the sense that it, it doesn't enhance conjugal love because they rega- regard it as a burden in many cases. Something that they have to do because they're married. Uh, and, uh, uh, so that, that's, uh, you know, this is a totally disordered, uh, and I would say heretical, um, uh, definition and uh, if we look in the catechism uh of the catholic church in number 26 uh, 2360 2360 if anybody wants to look at it it talks about the love of husband and wife and it says sexuality is ordered to the conjugal love of man and woman in marriage the physical intimacy of the spouses becomes a sign and pledge of spiritual communion Marriage bonds between baptized persons are sanctified by the sacrament. There is absolutely no mention of procreation there. Just uh, it, to clarify, this is the Novus Ordo Catechism. Yeah, Novus Ordo. This is not the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Uh, and so if you take out procreation from the, from the purpose, uh, as the primary purpose of, of uh, conjugal union, uh, of, of sexual intercourse, 
you open the door to contraception because if it's not essential, well then, you know, if the, even if the idea of showing love for each other is co-equal with, um, with uh, procreation of children as it is in Humane Vitae, by the way, uh, it is, it is presented as an end co-equal, uh, here it is presented as the only end, then, then you have all the reasons for contraception. Because it is not necessary that it is not a, a, a necessary and essential aspect of sexual intercourse. Procreation no longer is is uh, of the essence of sexual intercourse. Um, this is re- related, by the way, but that theology of the gift that they call uh, basically uh, the, the God has given us sexuality basically as a gift and. And just almost like an end in itself, and we have the right to use that uh, in whatever manner we want. So that's all, it's all. I don't know. If people, when they read these things, they realize it's all. It's all they have like a system. These people, and uh, they know what they are doing. So yes, there's that famous quotation of Mother Teresa. I, I cannot verify that it's authentic, but. It seemed to be authentic when I read it, referring to sexuality, and, and I think she was referring to masturbation, that, that God has given us toys to play with, and he won't be upset if we if we use them once in a while. Something to that effect. Uh, that And that that's the idea of that, that this is a, a kind of toy to play with. And, and it's a, uh, uh, a source of pleasure for us. And we should not be abashed to use it, because it is a source of, of pleasure for us. And you know, in God's plan, nothing, no pleasure is given without a concomitant burden. Uh, and the pleasure is is conceded in order to achieve an end. Uh, so there's the pleasure of eating, and then there's the pleasure of sexual uh, intercourse. If we don't feel like eating, we don't eat. We lose our appetites, we don't eat. And if we lose our appetites long enough, we die. Because there's no pleasure in it. Also, sexual intercourse, when it lacks the attraction of pleasure, would not be accomplished if that pleasure were not there. So, uh, in order that there be babies in the world, the pleasure is there. It, it, there's, nothing is given to us gratuitously, as if it were some sort of, uh, as we say, toy to play with. <clears throat> Um, and then on uh, number 83, so great is the value of a human life and so inalienable the right to life of an innocent child growing in the mother's womb that no alleged right to one's own body can justify a decision to terminate that life, all right, so far so good, comma, which is an end in itself. Uh, a human life is not an end in itself. Only God is an end in himself. And the reason why it's wrong is not because the human life is an end in itself, but because God made the human life, and he is an end in himself, and we do not have the right to take that life from anyone else. That life belongs to him, and not to me, not to even the person who has generated the life. Right, but to say that's an end in itself is is 
for, is is absolutely false. Just very sloppy, uh, then, Your Excellency. Just sloppy throughout. <laughs> They're purposely sloppy. This is written by people who are familiar with traditional teaching and who are modernists. This is written by Casper and Schoenborn. I mean, I'm sure Bergoglio had something to do with this, but this is written not by Bergoglio. He's too busy running around, you know, this place and that place. He's in Lesbos, probably. Yeah, Lesbos. He, you know, off to Lesbos. Of all of the islands to choose in the Aegean Sea, why did he choose Lesbos to go to? No, I'm sure it wasn't an accident, Your Excellency. Right. <laughs> uh, so then, based on that, uh, it says, similarly, the church not only feels the urgency to assert the right to a natural death without aggressive treatment and euthanasia, but likewise firmly rejects the death penalty. All right, that's false. It doesn't firmly reject the death penalty. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, it's a heresy uh, uh, in Exurge Domine. One of the heresies of Luther that was condemned is that it is uh, wrong to burn heretics. That's mm. a condemned heresy. It's convenient for him. <laughs> <laughs> so, the church has always defended the right of states to put people to death for, you know, obviously, grave crimes. So, but that, that's a whole other story. It's a, well, that'll be another show. There you, there you have another show, Stephen. Right. Well, the I was going to say, am I, am I wrong to think that the classic uh, sort of reference for, for Catholics here is that our Lord didn't say anything, uh, and when the good thief says, you know, we are rightly condemned, uh, we are suffering the, the punishment we should suffer, if our Lord really felt strongly about capital punishment, he said, no, that, that's not true, you, you shouldn't be suffering here in this way. Uh, our Lord right. never right. missed an opportunity to, to preach or to make a point, so the fact that he didn't there, I think, speaks volumes that, that we are, um, we understand the importance of capital punishment. Also, the, the Old Testament is loaded with capital punishment. Uh, that's the, the very law that the Jews cited for the blasphemer, for the imposter Messiah, is the stoning that he should have received. And because they could not do their stoning, then they asked the Romans to do the crucifixion. So, you know, their capital punishment is, is all over, uh, the Old Testament. So that means that God was wrong. Because he ordered the capital punishment, the the killing of the twenty three thousand who had worshipped the golden calf. Uh, it's an exodus, so he's wrong for that, you know. So again, uh, but that would be a good show, actually, capital punishment. So when you're ready mm. to it, <laughs> it's, uh, it's I can't believe you're giving me ideas for shows, Jerks. You've been doing this too long. Uh, I know. <laughs> I, I want to remind I want to remind our listeners that you are listening to the flagship show of Member Supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host Stephen Heiner, and today I've been joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn and Father Nicholas Disposito, and we've been discussing so far chapters one through three of Amoris Laetitia. Father, I'd like to ask you the, the same question that I asked uh, His Excellency at the beginning of today's episode, which is, you know, now that you've had some time to to look at this document. Uh, after our original show, what what have your your reflections been broadly? Well, one thing is that I personally think that Bergoglio is much. Uh, he's a better heretic. I mean, in the sense that he's um, uh, probably something the Argentinians have like to be a good anti-pope, but <laughs> he's clearer than Ratzinger. I mean, he 
believe something and he tells you. And I mean, yes, there is still a, a cold, cold language, but I think it's much more clear. Uh, he 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 actually, I mean, said that you can uh, do this discernment and 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 give the adulterers the the sacraments. I mean, people. I remember, like last year, they were saying he will never do that, and if he does that, we're going to be a system, and uh, he did it. So I think he's cl- much more clear. For me, it's more surprising that there is no reaction. <laughs> I cannot understand that. I'm not uh, surprised at all. So, uh, it's it's the, what do they call them? The bobbleheads? Is that it? The the little dogs that bobble that where the head goes up and down in the back they of the have car. Those, yes. Mm-hmm. I think they're bobbleheads. They used to, you see that, you saw them all the time, you know, 30 years ago. You don't see them so much anymore. I mean, yes, I mean, if you're, like he says, it's no surprise. It, it, it's a bad sign in the sense that, for me, the lack of reaction, um, is a sign. I mean, they have, I mean, I may be wrong or, or but basically I cannot think how they can have the Catholic faith because one of the attributes of the faith, especially when it's informed, um, when the gifts of the Holy Ghost came into action, into um, operation, uh, like the gift of understanding and, and, and of knowledge, one of those, we study that in the ascetical and mystical theology, there is like a natural reaction against heresy that can proceed from the gifts when, when they uh, perfect the virtue of faith. And you don't see that at all. I mean, you didn't, didn't see that even in the Second Vatican Council. You don't see that the, there is not this, this automatic reaction that proceeds from the virtue of faith, uh, and they it is like a block. So either the virtue of faith is not there, and they have some human faith in certain traditional things, or it's so weak that I mean it's going to disappear very soon. So uh, I mean, uh, the, for me that's scary. I mean, in the sense that uh, people in that situation, uh, the whole I mean. Their salvation is a, is a, is a stake here. It's, it's a very serious because when you don't have the faith, which is the principle and the foundation of, uh, I mean, of justification, you cannot be justified without the faith. People, they don't take this seriously, this document and the, the heresies Vatican II. And even they ascribe those er- er- errors to the church herself and to the, uh, to what they claim to be the Pope. That's, I mean, I don't know how they can say that, believe that. And have the, the infused virtue of faith at the same time. I, I don't, it's very, uh, for me, difficult to reconcile those two things. I mean, it's, uh, it's ignorance and many things, but, I mean, at the, at the, after 50 years, how they can claim ignorance, uh, that, that's the thing. Sure. I think that maybe, uh, they are having that reaction of faith. Perhaps uh, yeah, I can't get into their heads, but they uh, perhaps they through the hand wringing and the eye rolling they expiate it. That mm-hmm. we can still deal with this. Uh, they they see the what you might call a schism uh, as a much greater evil than the lack of continuity of doctrine. They see they're looking at the church from a purely material point of view, as if it's you know only an organization. And they are neglecting its continuity of doctrine and morals. The the organization exists for the doctrine and morals. And anyone who is upholding Catholic doctrine and morals is not in schism from the Catholic Church. <laughs> it's impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you are upholding those things uh, against a, a would-be authority who is trying to impose false doctrine, false moral teaching, there's no possible way that you are guilty of the sin of schism. 
But I, I think that they are, are excessively materialistic in the way that they look at the church. <clears throat> He's the Pope, and and uh, and we have to be loyal to him, and... Uh, yes, he's saying bad things, but we'll roll our eyes and, and, uh, ring. I, I don't know. I, but what you say is very true that, uh, yes, there is a, a lack of the natural reaction of the faith, uh, just as, uh, the natural reaction you would have to a math teacher who would say two plus two equals five. Uh, it, it's, you say, you'd immediately say that it's, that's not possible. So, uh, and there's greater certitude concerning the faith than there is even concerning that two plus two equals four. Yes, and for me it's more like the yes, I understand how people, the regular, the average Catholic and traditional Catholic, the, the listeners, for example, of, of this program, um, yes, I can see how because of the crisis and the confusion, etc. But those who actually do their research, I mean, they they claim to know sacred theology and they claim to, I mean, be in the, I mean even run websites that are supposed to be traditional uh, Catholic websites, those people that they claim so much of the, uh, of the knowledge, uh, that's, <laughs> it's, it's, for me at least, it's, uh, um, it's very, I don't know, when I see those things, how, how they can reconcile the, I mean, Vatican II and, and Francis with, I mean, all those errors and, and say that that's the Catholic Church. And that, that's, all of that comes from the Catholic Church, from the, the Church of Christ, and all of that, uh, and it's possible to have those two things. Uh, it's, it's, it's strange. I mean, for the state of Acantis, I mean, it's, uh, yes, it's a prolonged va- vacancy and all the, the things that that implies, but the Church is immaculate, never, is not able, all the bishops under the Pope, never, it's impossible that they, they can teach heresy. So, and that's so clear. Uh, that uh, I don't know. It's those people. <laughs> it is for a mystery. Difficult to understand them. Chalk it up to mystery. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on, in number one hundred and eighteen, it, it just as sort of a, an aside. He quotes Martin Luther King, who of course is a Protestant, uh, a leftist. Some would say a communist. He was under the uh, investigation by the FBI. He uh, plagiarized his uh, doctoral thesis, according to what I remember, uh, and also was uh, spent the night with a prostitute, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it, before he was shot. Uh, and so he gives a big, long quote from from that person. Uh, but uh, whatever, you know, whatever that's worth. Um, At least it was a Christian. The other one that quotes first, uh, I think I mentioned the, the Jorge Luis Borges. He was an agnostic. He was uh, yeah. uh, anti-Catholic. Always attacked the Catholic Church, an anarchist, and even uh, he said that to believe in hell is irrational because nobody can be condemned forever. I mean, very like what Francis is saying. Um, he all of those things that he's quoted in that document, which. If you're not from Argentina, you probably don't understand, but it's like quoting Voltaire. I mean, it's some, somebody like that. It's an enemy. It's the enemy. So quoting him, for for those who know what's going on, it's very strange. Yes. In number uh, 121, he says, Marriage is a precious sign for, quote, when a man and a woman celebrate the sacrament of marriage, 
God is, as it were, mirrored in them. He impresses in them his own features and the indelible character of his love. Marriage is the icon of God's love for us. Indeed, God is also communion. The three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live eternally in perfect unity. And this is precisely the mystery of marriage God makes of the two spouses one single existence. And he's quoting himself. <laughs> it looks like uh, 2nd of April 2014, that would be himself, right? The Observatory Romano a catechesis that he did. So, um, uh, the marriage, according to St. Paul, is the image of Christ's love for the church. And that's the very reason why it is indissoluble, because Christ's love for the church is indissoluble. Uh, the, uh, I don't know of any place where, uh, it says that, uh, uh, it is an image of, uh, you know, God's love for us or anything like that. The only thing that St. Paul says is that it's an image of God's love for his church. Uh, but then we get back to God is also communion, that the, he makes an analogy between Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. They live in perfect unity. And in marriage, the two spouses, uh, he makes them have one single existence. Well, that's not true. They don't have one single existence. Uh, they're two uh, separate persons who are living in a contractual union. Uh, uh, God is not living in a contractual union, the three persons. <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, there's not, uh, and again, this idea that they come together into one existence, it's as if Father, Son, and Holy Ghost come together in one existence, that's heretical. There's no pre-existence of the three persons. Uh, it certainly implies heresy. So, in any case, that's uh, just a little heresy for you there. So. Um, I think it's interesting, too, Your Excellency, you've managed to pinpoint again this idea of God as communion. Mm-hmm. I don't think I really picked up on that in my on my first reading of this document, but here's yet another time that you you've selected something in which he's He's going for this idea. It's very strange. Well, you know, a, a priest, and especially a priest who has been teaching theology for as long as I've been teaching it, is it will pick up on things like that immediately. You know, the, the bells go off, red flags. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever you're talking about the Trinity, you have to. Uh, and you know, a priest is going to be much more sensitive to to certain things that that are on the page uh, than a lay person. Um, Number 128, he says, the aesthetic experience of love is expressed in that gaze which contemplates other persons as ends in themselves. That no other person is an end in himself. Only God is an end in himself. We exist for God. And, and any love that we have for any creature must be in accordance with God's will, that is, we must love it in the way that God wants us to love that thing or person, and to the extent that he wants us to love that thing or person. But to say that something or someone is an end in itself or himself is is a very serious error. It, It deprives God of his right to be the end in himself. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's another error, I would say. You know, but it, it all error is is the matter for heresy eventually. When error invades the faith, you know, as something that is erroneous, 
invades the faith, then uh, it uh, it turns into heresy. Um, uh, this is number 154. Even though Paul, meaning St. Paul, was writing in the context of a patriarchal culture in which women were considered completely subordinate to men, he nonetheless taught that sex must involve communication between the spouses. He brings up the possibility of postponing sexual relations for a period, but by agreement. So there's this idea that uh, St. Paul was uh, uh, influenced by the culture, and that's why he said that uh, uh, women should be subject to men, which is contrary to faith. It's it's an inspired text. Uh, then on, in number 156, and I have heresy written in the, in the (laughs) margin. Every form of sexual submission must be clearly rejected. This includes all improper interpretations of the passage in the letter to the Ephesians where Paul tells women to be subject to your husbands. So we must reject that. This passage mirrors the cultural categories of the time. But our concern is not with its cultural matrix, another word they love, but with the revealed message that it conveys. Well, what is the revealed message? Be subject to your husbands. As, and if you look at Ephesians 5:22, it is as, uh, as the church is subject to Christ. He draws out that whole analogy that the reason why wives are subject to their husbands is because the the church must be subject to Christ. Uh, if you read uh, Ephesians, he goes through... Ephesians is a very important uh, document because it contains um, a, a lot on the mystical body of Christ and also on marriage itself and how it relates to, uh, to um, um, uh, the church. Uh, let's see, we're, I'm just quoting from Ephesians here. Um, uh, chapter 5, verse, uh, tw- first of all, in, in chapter 5, we have the famous quote, For know you this, and understand that no fornicator, or unclean, or covetous person, which is a serving of idols, hath inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Alright? This cultural. Yeah, that's yeah, cultural. Not, we're, not, we're not concerned with this cultural matrix here. Right. Uh, verse 22, let women be subject to their husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so also let the wives be to their husbands in all things. Now, how could, how could he be so stupid, I'm going to say, as to say that St. Paul is influenced by the culture? Here he's giving a theological reason that is derived from the very relationship of Christ and his church uh, for the the fact that wives must be subject to their husbands. Where is the culture there? Does he say, well, because everyone in Ephesus, uh, you know, uh, beats their wives and and you should just keep your mouth shut and and be subject to your husband because everybody else is doing it? Is that the reason that he gives? I mean, this is really absurd. We're getting down into stupidity and absurdity here. He gives the the sacred reason why a wife must be subject to her husband. 
and it's also in Genesis as one of the uh, uh, punishments that are meted out to women because of original sin, her submission to her husband. So, But I guess that was cultural too, whatever culture existed between Adam and Eve, but we probably have to assign that as fairy tale anyway, because I think he said that the whole thing was a joke. I think at one point, he, he, Bergoglio said that uh, the Adam and Eve narrative is a joke. Uh, but in any case, uh, I mean, these people have no respect for sacred scripture. Um, then he says in the same paragraph, <clears throat> the community or unity which they should establish through marriage is constituted by a reciprocal donation of self, which is also a mutual subjection. A mutual subjection. And then he quotes himself in the footnote again. Yes, that's yeah, that catechesis again. Although, let's see, no, that's actually, that's from JP2. Yeah, 1982, sorry, that's right, you're a Yes, 1982. But I mean, so mutual subjection, how, how are, who, who's the boss then? Who's the boss? Does General Motors work on mutual <laughs> subjection? <laughs> well, he says he says further down reciprocal submission. So I suppose it's yes. the same thing. Reciprocal submission is the same thing as mutual subjection. Yes, yes, and he's actually uh, interpreting uh, the Ephesians that that quotation in, in Ephesians. And by that, the, in marriage, this reciprocal submission takes a special meaning. So you know, he's totally perverting marriage, and he's calling for chaos in marriage where nobody is the boss but someone will always emerge as the boss and usually it's the woman whenever the man does not insist upon it and uh, uh, you know take his place so very very often the man is relegated to the the man cave in the house he brings home the money and is relegated to the man cave where he drinks beer and watches football and the woman makes all the decisions and runs the, the whole place mm. uh, so, um, um, and then he says, in the same paragraph, sexuality is inseparably at the service of this conjugal friendship, for it is meant to aid the fulfillment of the other. Now, what about procreation again? See, it, it, it's, it entirely pulls away sexual intercourse from procreation. It has all of these... Uh, this, it's at the service of friendship and, and mutual love and so forth. Where is procreation? Hmm. It, it's a very I, wicked it, document. Well, it's missing out of the entire next paragraph as well. Paragraph 157 is this long disquisition on, on what love is, and we don't see the word children procreation at all in that entire paragraph. No. It, it lays all the foundations for contraception, and contraception lays all the foundations for abortion. Because if we have control over children that we conceive and not God, then we also have control over the life of those who are conceived. Because that means the whole conceptual process or, or, or process of conception is under the control of human beings not under God's control. The reason why it's wrong to abort a child is because that child is under God's control. It uh, has an immortal soul. It is made by God. It is destined to be uh, a, a human being in heaven, praising him 
that that and that's why he sent his eternal begotten son eternally begotten and only begotten son to uh to die in order that human beings come to heaven that's why that that soul and that body is so precious to god and that's why it's wrong to abort it that's why it's wrong to contracept but if you remove that uh, if you remove procreation then you you open the door logically to contraception and abortion and sterilization uh uh Let's see. I think we have another heresy here in, in, 19, in 159. Uh, St. Paul recommended virginity because he expected oh, Jesus' imminent return. All right. That's, that was condemned. I think it's in Lamentabili that St. Paul thought that the, that the, uh, that our Lord's return would be very soon. I, I'm almost certain it's condemned in Lamentabili, but in any case, it's not true. Because if you read in Second Thessalonians, he actually tells the Thessalonians, chapter five, that he that no, you're wrong to think that he is returning soon because two things must happen: uh, the man of uh, the, there must be a great apostasy, and then the man of sin must appear. So that that he says, make no mistake, you know, these things have to happen first. And then in Romans, he talks about the conversion of the Jews. And he certainly didn't think that that was going to happen overnight. I mean, he was being harassed by the Jews, uh, in, in, you know, the, that disagreed with him. And, and, um, so, uh, so it's just false. But it's also condemned. Uh, so, nonetheless, he says, he made it clear that this was his, uh, personal opinion and preference. See that it was his personal opinion that that Christ was going to come soon. Um, uh, excuse me. Um, okay, a preference, not something demanded by Christ. I have no command in the Lord. He's talking about virginity, and he's recommending virginity. All the same, he recognized the value of different callings. Each has his or her own special gift from God, uh, one of one kind and one of another, quoting Corinthians, and he, he says, reflecting on this, Saint, Saint John Paul II noted that the biblical texts give no reason, this is a quote, give no reason from Saint John Paul II, no reason to assert the inferiority of marriage, nor the superiority of virginity or celibacy. All right, this is an explicit heresy against the Council of Trent uh, that defined that the that virginity is a higher state than matrimony. This you can't get more explicit. <laughs> defined by the Council of Trent, Session Twenty Four, Canon Ten. Look it up. It's on the internet. Okay, so he has an explicit heresy in here. Uh, quoting, uh, that's of course JP2's heresy, of Saint, oh, Saint. Uh, but it, it, he's quoting it in a laudatory manner, which means he's guilty of it too. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> um, so let's see. Uh, 
moving on here. <clears throat> Obviously, Bergoglio is, uh, doesn't read too much of sacred scripture or <laughs> lamentably or the Council of Trent. I mean, it's, it's always the same that more than once he, uh, is so, the, the error is so, so clear or so absurd that, uh, he probably is not even aware of the contradictions. Yes. Right. Well, that, that's why it's, it's so surprising to see. He, uh, I think just a little further on, Your Excellency, there's a, there's another quote of St. Thomas from the Secunda Secundae. You know, and you, I think you said in the last episode, this is sort of like taking a, a bum around in a, a really nice car. <laughs> uh, you, you have this filthy car, you pull up and you ask St. Thomas to get inside. Uh, and it's, uh, no, it was the other way around. St. Thomas is a nice car, and he's the bum, right? right? And and so he's driving around in this beautiful car, and he, you know, he's totally impoverished and, and has nothing, but he's showing off this beautiful car. I'm going to cite St. Thomas for my heresy and my errors and everything else. I mean, it it it's just absurd that you could draw in St. Thomas to agree with any of this nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, that footnote is from paragraph 162, and he says, In such love the dignity of the true lover shines forth, inasmuch as it is more proper to charity to love than to be loved. Yes. yes. Again, I, you uh, just, I just feel it's gratuitous. He's just going to bring St. Thomas in so someone can say, Look, see, he cites St. Thomas in, in yes. this uh, exhortation. That's why it's good. Yes, probably the only pre-Vatican II citation in the whole thing. <laughs> I'm going to guess that that the, the St. Thomas quote, uh, you know. It, well, they, they, I think there's a there's a quote from Casti Canubi in, in here, which of uh, course is ma- massively ironic. But okay. uh, uh, Father Disposito, um, there was a time uh, Father Chicada told me that uh, you would put SSPX uh, who are trying to defend something of the Archbishop, they'd put a quote of the Archbishop at the top of whatever they were going to say, and that made it that made it acceptable. Right, so it's the same sort of uh, strategy here. We put St. Thomas in here to please uh, the tradition, say, oh, he, he quotes Pius XI, he quotes St. Thomas, uh, we can yes. use this. Yes. Well, not only that, but I, I have seen books written about John Paul II saying that he was a pure Thomist and also that he followed St. John of the Cross. <laughs> I mean, I've seen books uh, that you, I didn't buy it, but uh, all the, that, that was his, his spirituality and his... Uh, his philosophy and theology was Thomistic and St. John of the Cross, which is the best you can get, but, I mean, John Paul II. <laughs> no, he was a phenomenologist and uh, proof positive of his rejection of Thomism is that Gary Lagrange rejected his thesis uh, uh, because of the new theology in it and uh, the false philosophy in it. Uh, his doctoral thesis at the, uh, uh, at the um, Angelicum. So that uh, brings us to the end of chapter four. Or, or, or... That's, that's fine. You're, and I, I warned you, Your Excellency, when we were doing the planning for this show, I said chapters one through four. And you said, oh, I, I think we can do that uh, in a pretty short amount of time. And it's, it's, been, it's been quite a, a long episode today. And I think it's proof that there's just that much garbage you've got to sort through. Yes, and the Novus Ordo conservatives are concentrating on one, uh, just on one chapter, and that is uh, chapter eight, when there's really a lot of error and even heresy in this whole document. You know, it's, uh, 
I'm going to write a critical analysis of it for my next newsletter. Mm. Well, that'll be a very long newsletter. Uh, well, it, like... it'll be a supplement. Supplement. <laughs> I want to remind our listeners if you'd like to get um, a get the, the newsletter. If you haven't heard it before, you need to be obviously uh, someone who's contributed at least seventy five dollars to the seminary. But we always say for Restoration Radio listeners, you need to have contributed at least a hundred and seventy five dollars in order to get the newsletter. Um, Father Disposito, I was told that uh, this this document was also of direct benefit to Bergoglio's own relatives. Uh, apparently, he's, I think he's got a nephew who's living with his girlfriend and someone who's divorced, so uh, they were probably quite happy to get this document as well. Oh, yes, um, the funny thing is that part of the Bergoglio family is actually, they live in the, in the town. I am originally from Villa Dolores, so some cousins there, so I... <laughs> Would be funny if they, that family, they, I mean, they, whatever, the fornicators or whatever, they are actually from my own town, so that would be bad. Yeah. But mm. that's the, uh, the world is very small. <laughs> well, you have to be merciful. You have to do discernments. So. <laughs> yeah, a lot of discernment. Yeah, a lot of discernment there. <laughs> but one of the reasons why I, do, I don't go very often to Argentina is because all my family, except my mother, they are noble sordites. Some of them are not living, I mean, they're in irregular situations. And um, so I it's weird for me to say anything when their pope, I mean, basically, is telling them that they're okay. So... Um, it's really hard, I mean, when you are in that situation, so I prefer not to, I mean, they know, I mean, they they know what's going on, and, but it's very strange that they have, they had this so-called Pope uh, telling them that it's absolutely okay to, to live in either um, concubinage, adultery, and they can receive the sacraments, everything's okay, so they, you cannot do anything against that, I mean, they have to um, well, uh, we, well, uh, as always, Your Excellency and, and Father, thanks for joining us for this episode. Um, I've got two people concerned with the seminary. Uh, we're coming into May, so we've still got another two months. Are the, uh, are the seminarians bearing up against the, uh, the weight of the academic year? How are you discerning they are doing? <laughs> we do discernments on their test papers <laughs> with red pens. Uh, they're doing fine. We have a good group, uh, and uh, they are promising. And uh, I hope uh, we're, you know, they continue. Uh, the uh, and then we have a, a strong showing for next year. Right now, I've accepted the seven new candidates, and there's uh, two others interested at this point, And we could, you know, see yet others before it's all done. So. Uh, it, there's a strong showing, but again, I would say that's our because of our friend Bergoglio that that people are realizing that they just cannot uh, reconcile him with the Catholic faith, and, and that they are taking a long look at what we're saying. He's a good recruiting sergeant for you. Oh right? yes, yes, definitely is. I, I wanted to give you and Father uh, a final word. Um, obviously, we've covered chapters one through four. We'll try to get through the other chapters in a future episode. Again, we, we have Novus Ordo listeners, um, you know, paying members of, um, of True Restoration. So any, anything you'd like to leave them with, um, Father, I'll let you go first, and then His Excellency can finish. So, Chad, I was in the Novus Ordo, and when I understood the, the difference, uh, the two different religions, 
many people may still have the faith, but somehow, and but once they are exposed to the the, 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 the whole traditional doctrine, what I will say to them is just leave the nose order, try to find a a good place for for the mass. I mean, validly and licitly, and um, and just keep, to keep the faith. There's nothing more important than the faith. And uh, before you mentioned the, the podcast in Spanish, and there's not much interest I meant in my family and friends, but I, I, I the we took it the other way. Yes, but there is much, I <laughs> that think it was just is, dull. I think there is interest in general, not not for, I mean, not for me, of course, but for there's no much uh, in Spanish uh, around. I mean, I have in websites or anything like that, so it's very important that they can listen to a to a priest that. Uh, has been formed in the traditional way and not with the weird ideas of the society, etc. Society Sampai is a tenth, you mean? The society Sampai is a tenth, yes. I mean, in Argentina, the society has a lot of influence. And well, they've got a seminary down there, yeah. Yes, and they do basically a lot. I mean, the, the apostolate, everything, but their ideas, their formation is not very good, so you think uh, Econ is bad, you have to go to Argentina. <laughs> um, <laughs> They basically have no formation, nothing, and they that transmit that lack, the privation of formation uh, to the people. So the this, I think, it's very important that we use technology to um, make the podcasts and things like that, that for people that are interested. So I think there is there are some people that are looking forward to to the show. So thing mm. that. If they are subscribing to this, they have at least a suspicion that there's something deeply wrong in the Novus Ordo. They, they wouldn't be listening to us, paying to listen to us, if if they didn't realize that there was something deeply wrong. And, and it is their duty to compare side by side the teaching of Vatican II and all of the subsequent teaching and pastoral practice and everything else that we, we bring up in this show with the traditional teaching and pastoral practice of the church and and make a decision is this roman catholicism or not is this continuity or not uh, i always press that because continuity is key with the catholic church it, it cannot identify with christ and it cannot identify with the apostles unless it has continuity of doctrine continuity of essential liturgical practices and continuity of essential pastoral practices this document is destroying the continuity of essential pastoral practices. That is, the, the practices which flow necessarily from Catholic doctrine, and which the Church is not free to change. It can change some fasting laws and other things that it has made up on its own, but it cannot change pastoral practices which flow necessarily from doctrine, just as it cannot change liturgical practices which flow necessarily from doctrine. This is the problem, and, it, and if you say, well, I recognize that there's lack of continuity, but I'm going to stick with it anyway, you're going to go to hell for it, because you're giving up the faith. Well, I think that's a great way to end, Your Excellency. Thanks so much for your time. Father, thanks so much for your time, and I know you're not going to look forward to the next time we deal with Amoris Laetitia, but thank you for your fortitude anyway. Right. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We want to remind our listeners that if you have any questions for His Excellency or Father on this episode and you need clarification, email questions at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that the flagship show 
is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope you found this show to be informative, helpful, and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the Restoration, I'm Stephen Heiner. May God bless you.